Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the enemy of my enemy is my friend edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Here with my friends, not my enemies. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> the show is still young. Wait, if you're my friend, you have no a friend enemies. of my friend. He's <laughs> my <laughs> enemy. <laughs> I'm here in middle school. I'm here with my enemies, Tamara Kaufman Woodis and Ben Woodis. Hello, enemies. Hello, Shane. <laughs> nice to see you again, my nemeses. Nemeses, enemies. Nemeses is the plural of nemesis, yes? I believe it is. Nemeses, all right. Um, today on the show, we're gonna, we're gonna lead with the, uh, the reference to the title of our show, which is that General David Petraeus has a new plan for fighting ISIS. Is it smart or utterly nuts? Uh, also, a new article takes us deep inside the mind and menace of a definite enemy, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the self-declared caliph of the Islamic State. And a new book takes us deep inside the operation to kill an American al-Qaeda fighter. Enemy, not an enemy? We'll find out. Plus, in object lessons, uh, ancient art and modern icons of a sort. More than one. Uh, why don't we start with uh, my wordplay, which is, uh, a, yet again, an article on the Daily Beast. Go figure. <clears throat> so yeah, they have some really good reporters yeah, over there. Yeah, I mean, there's this guy, Shane Harris, who keeps he breaks using, news. His, using his own stuff on the show. I know. Yeah. Can you imagine this, 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 the log rolling edition every week? <laughs> I suppose it also could be a, uh, uh, a, a an article by Jake Tapper in CNN on CNN.com, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but the, the crux of this is that uh, David Petraeus, of course, the former commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and in Iraq, uh, and the former CIA director, among other things, uh, has been quietly suggesting to U.S. officials and some terrorism experts that we should try and co-op certain members uh, of al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Nusra Front, which is al-Qaeda's branch in Syria, to try and get them to either come over to our side or fight with us against ISIS. The idea here being that he's reaching back to his 2007 strategy in Iraq, where we convinced Sunni militias and tribesmen to stop joining with al-Qaeda in Iraq, which of course was ISIS's predecessor, and fight with us against the insurgency there. So and he's making clear that he wants to, uh, you know, find, as he terms them, the reconcilables, the people who are not the hardcore, bad of the bad, actual Al-Qaeda, actual jihadists, but rather people who may have been in the so-called moderate opposition in Syria and who maybe went over to al-Nusra because they weren't getting the support uh, that they needed from us uh, and find themselves perhaps in the position of being persuaded to once again join up with us. Um, we wrote this story. I have to say I am personally, and based on experts I've talked to, not persuaded of the, the viability of this strategy, simply the political viability of it to begin with. But w- would love to get your guys' take on uh, what you think about uh, Petraeus's bold new initiative. Okay, so at the substantive level, I'm not sure 
it's that radical. First of all, it is the approach that the U.S. took in Iraq um, with some success there. Yeah. Um, but more than that, I would say that it's been an it's been well understood, I think, that for the United States and its partners to build an effective fighting force, uh, Syrian opposition force, it would have to peel support away from more radical factions. Um, and in fact, that would be desirable to peel support away from radical factions. My problem with it is that, you know, there, there are two more fundamental challenges for the United States in implementing such a strategy that have nothing to do with the nature of al-Nusra. Number one is, what are we asking them to fight for? Um, and number two is, can we demonstrate that um, that the thing they most care about, which is success on the battlefield, is something they could achieve better with us than with a radical faction? The reason that the, that the more radical Islamist factions have um, have managed to win more recruits uh, is not simply that they have money, but that they are demonstrating success on the battlefield, Nusra and ISIS, more than anybody else. Um, you want to fight with a winner. Right. People want to <laughs> fight with a winner. You know, if they're Syrians, they're fighting for the liberation of their land or the security of their communities, and that's of paramount importance. But this, of course, gets to the underlying problem that the administration faces in its Syria policy, that it simply will not um, acknowledge uh, stands in the way of success, and that is that it keeps asking Syrians to sign up to fight ISIS and not Assad. And yes, Nusra and ISIS are rivals. People who are fighting in Nusra probably do fight against ISIS, but that doesn't mean that they're going to switch to another faction that's just about fighting ISIS. They're fighting to get rid of Bashar al-Assad. And until we're willing to sign up for that, we're not going to be able to get the support we want. In fact, I, I thought that Petraeus's idea would have been even bolder had he said, and we should offer them the chance to fight Assad. Right. And we should take it to him, too. No, but that I, would have been a bold idea. That would have been, that would have been I, very different from, because it is so similar in generic spirit to what we're trying to do anyway. Right. It's just that here you're asking us to now try and look like we're almost partnering with Al-Qaeda, for God's sake. You know? Right. So, so it's, I, I have a, I guess as a thought experiment, why doesn't the same logic apply to ISIS itself. That, you know, if you believe that there are reconcilables and irreconcilables and you can peel off the not-so-bad guys, why not do try to do the same thing with ISIS? Why why limit yourself to al-Nusra? I mean, I, I think, well, it, one, it presumes that you think that there are reconcilables in ISIS, which almost certainly there must be, right? There must be some large number of idiot teenagers who, you know, or desperate villagers. Right, right, exactly. Who found these people on Twitter or who find themselves in an impossible scenario who could come over to us. Um, so, sure. So what's, I mean, the difference, but what's the difference between Al Nusra, whom we're at war with under the AUMF, and okay. ISIS, with yeah. whom you're, we're at war right. with? Right, so that, I think, that like, I think gets to the question about Petraeus' proposal, which is is it really much of a new idea right. at all? And why or is, is Al Nusra so really... different from, Al from yeah. ISIS? <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean, I just don't understand, like, why the exact logic that he's proposing vis-a-vis Nusra isn't equally as true of ISIS. Either the premise is right, which is that there's, that these are sort of broad coalitions that people get into for their own reasons and that you can peel off the ones who aren't in it because they really, really hate you. Um, 
and you can create factions that make sense uh, and can work in your interests or you can work with out of those that you can peel off. If that's right, I'm not sure why it's less right of, of ISIS than Nusra. And if it's wrong, why isn't it just as wrong of Nusra as, a, as of ISIS? Right. Well, it almost makes you wonder. I mean, so if what Petraeus is now publicly saying that he's been advising the administration is merely that they should seek to peel supporters away from these radical movements and integrate them into a more moderate Syrian opposition force, I think we can all agree, duh. Right. Okay? So it, it makes one wonder whether his actual advice is perhaps a bit more radical than that, but something that he won't as yet cop to, which might be something like, you know, if the forces we're supporting on the ground are engaged in operations where they might tactically cooperate with a Nusra uh, battalion, you know, let them do that. Now that, you know, that is much more in the vein of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and it's much more like what the U.S. has been willing to do with Shia militias in Iraq. Well, and, and also, and this, this is kind of against the backdrop of a broader debate about whether there are other, uh, you know, not quite Al-Qaeda groups like Arar al-Sham, you know, and then many former members of the administration, you know, uh, Robert Ford, chief among them probably, have promoted the idea of team up with these guys because, well, people sometimes people think they're jihadis, but they're probably not really jihadis. I mean, it kind of gets in this thing of like, we're now talking about, and this frequently I think, I get this sense in my, not in my reporting, but sometimes in, you know, in the public debate around this whole issue that somehow like Al-Nusra, it's like, well, not quite as bad as ISIS. And after all, Al-Qaeda, did split from ISIS because ISIS was even too radical for Al Qaeda, and that somehow Al Qaeda is now what less radical or less awful? I mean, well, it's, I, I, I mean, they I, only hit the World Trade Center. Right. In the I mean, it's a, you're still talking about a group that is dedicated to overthrowing the government in Syria and replacing it with an Islamic state. It's just one with a different name. Yeah. Well, I think this gets to a little bit of you know the sense that there's not a clear. Um, set or priority of strategic objectives for the United States in Syria. You know, as long as the United States insists that defeating ISIS is at the top of its priority list and everything is subordinate to that, um, then that has a little bit of a perverse effect on these other, on these other aspects right. of policy, including how the attitude toward al-Nusra. Um, you know, and it also, there's an analytic, um, lack of clarity underneath that, which is, what's the source of the threat for the U.S. and for U.S. interests and U.S. partners in the Syrian-Iraqi arena? Is the source of the threat ISIS, or is the source of the threat this civil conflict between a whole bunch of militias and a really awful government that produces the grievances, the, the space to operate, and so on that ISIS thrives on? No, no. So I, I think I speak for all listeners mm -hmm. when when I say that what people really want to hear about is your cat fight with David Petraeus. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I mean, I think that this goes back to the question I think that Tamara raised a second ago, which is what is David Petraeus really up to? Because he's a what is he really up to? He's a sophisticated thinker, and I have to believe that there is more in his brain to this plan that has been articulated so far. Do you think he's written it in his notebooks? <laughs> Would he show them to me? <laughs> I'm a journalist. Um, but look, here's what happened, too, in the reporting of this story, is, I mean, we from in sources independently, 
learned what he was saying, including from somebody who he had a direct conversation with about this. Uh, and we, as good journalists do, went to General Petraeus, informed him what we're working on, and said, we would like you to comment for this story. And declined, he declined the opportunity to comment for our story. Uh, and then the next day, sent a lengthy statement, I presume via email, to CNN, uh, implying that our story had somehow lacked nuance and background, I think was the, the, the phrase that CNN used, and proceeded to write a lengthy email statement that validated every single thing in our story. Um, and so there's this, I think what's happening here is that, you know, he has been floating this around town to people. Uh, I don't think he was ready for it to come out. Um, I think clearly got the impression that he wasn't, you know, averse to talking about it, but just more on his own terms. We wrote our story. It's out there. The reaction to it, at least in the social media space that I follow, was pretty negative. Uh, you know, a lot of like, oh, this will end great. Uh, and then availed himself of the opportunity to then publicly say uh, many of the things that we had already reported. I have to think that there's more to this um, that he has in mind. But, you know, I just uh, want to be on record as objecting to the idea that uh, our story did not accurately capture uh, his views, at least the views that he has publicly now shared with CNN. What else is in his head? Well, I guess we'll find out. Well, we hereby invite David Petraeus on the show. Come on, Dave. Come on, come on the show to yell at Shane. Give, give Shane all a big piece of your mind and tell us how you feel, which specific members of NUSRA are reconcilable and what we should arm them with. Also, like, if you have a list of those individuals, like, please share that with your colleagues, former colleagues in Langley, Virginia, because I'm pretty sure they don't know who those people are. <laughs> All right, tomorrow, shall we move on to your wordplay? Sure. Well, I brought with me today a fascinating read, which I commend to both of you and to all our Rational Security listeners. Um, this is a, a new essay by my colleague, Will McCants, and it's called The Believer. It is an in-depth profile of Ibrahim Awad Ibrahim al-Badri, better known to all of us as Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of uh, the so-called Islamic State. Not a reconcilable. No, Definitely no. not a reconcilable. Not a reconcilable. Not part of the Petraeus plan. And, you know, there's long been a, a kind of debate among um, analysts and ISIS watchers about Baghdadi and what kind of guy he really is. Is he really a sort of committed ideologue? Is he a political genius? Um, because he's managed to kind of build this, put himself in this position and apparently, you know, score some real competitive victories over Al-Qaeda? Um, or is he sort of a figurehead and there's a bunch of shadowy uh, Islamists and or Ba'athists behind him mm. pulling the strings? And so what Will does in this piece in, in uh, rich detail, and it's a gripping read, is go, you know, throughout Baghdadi's history, we don't know a lot about his early life, but we know some. Um, certainly, you know, look at his history um, as, a, as an academic. He was a, a very accomplished oral reciter of the Quran, which is um, an extremely highly valued skill, and he went on to do a PhD in Quranic studies in Iraq. And, uh, and so by the time he got involved in uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, he, you know, he had the kind of um, theological chops or the Islamic legal chops to make arguments that some of the other senior figures who were not themselves so learned had to rely on him 
to come up with these justifications. And then, you know, he really seems to have chosen his moments to move into um, stronger and stronger positions within the movement and then ultimately to take over uh, and uh, and to challenge uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri and, and al-Qaeda by declaring the Islamic State. So even his ascension to the leadership went against al-Qaeda's instructions, um, which was to wait and be patient and consult amongst the tribes and try and build support. And uh, he and his allies said, no, let's just have an election in our consultative council. And lo and behold, Baghdadi won. Um, and so I think Will's conclusion is that this is a very capable man who combines um, Islamic learning with some keen political skills. Mm -hmm. Like he's a coalition builder, he's a maneuverer, manipulator, and uh, and so we really shouldn't discount him um, or the movement that he heads. Of course, this also suggests that his removal from the head of this movement would probably have profound consequences for the future of the Islamic State. And so, I you know, I I really would urge you both to read this, but I I also would just love to hear a little bit more from your perspective about how important is a figure like Baghdadi? Is it about the man or is it about the movement? Um, and and it gets us, I think, also to the question of targeted killing as a tactic in facing down this movement. So it totally depends who's underneath them. You know, mm -hmm. and if you imagine that the decapitation strike is of Zarqawi, and underneath him is somebody like Baghdadi, then it turns out that, you know, this great sort of tactical victory actually is not such a wonderful thing in the long run. On the other hand, I think it's really fair to say that Al-Qaeda is dramatically weaker for not having Osama bin Laden, and that uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is... Uh, dramatically weaker for not having Anwar al-Awlaki. Um, and I think, you know, when the figure is somebody who is uh, inspirational as well as has strategic uh, and tactical leadership abilities, their removal can be very, very substantial. And I think it really just depends whom you're removing and who, what kind of architecture, human architecture, is, is underneath it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Ben on that. I mean, and I think we can, there's, there's a sort of parallel example that tests this, the idea a little bit, which was the death of Malalmar, the Taliban uh, chief, who apparently was dead for two years. And there's been some reporting on this in the past week um, that uh, there was a conscious decision on the part of the Taliban and perhaps in the cahoots with al-Qaeda, which of course is loyal to Malalmar, to, to keep that fact unknown and to go keep up with the sort of weekend of Bernie's pretense right. that the hell of the Taliban was alive, presumably because there was some value to be gained by having Rollah Omar as at least the the um sort of nominal head, the understood head of the organization. So Well and maybe yeah. it, it just staved off gave them time to resolve internal conflicts right. at senior levels. And it also seems like, I mean, it sounds like Will is probably making the argument that it very much, that the man does matter more than the movement, or as much as the movement. And we do kind of, like, reflexively, I think some analysts fall back on this idea of, like, well, it's like a hydra. You cut one off, and five more bloom in their place. But even just the history of ISIS doesn't seem to support that idea. I mean, this is a movement and organization that 
was sort of brought to the forefront by this guy and by mm -hmm. the decisions that he made and the people he was able to rally around well, him and the opportunities. Well, we, we brought to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. It was substantially defeated uh, in Iraq. Zarqawi right. uh, right. was killed, it. and over a protracted period of time, when the pressure was off, he was able to regenerate it. But and there were two pretty far-sighted decisions and, and bold decisions in that. One was to establish a presence in Syria very early um, after the uprising began in Syria and to use violence in the Syrian context as a way of generating a different dynamic there. And over seven months, you know, ISIS, what became ISIS and others transformed what had been a nonviolent protest movement into a, a violent civil conflict with the government um, with the help of Bashar al-Assad. So that was one decision to establish that presence in Syria. And then the other one was to go ahead and declare the Islamic State. Um, and those were, at least by Will's account, his decisions. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think I will, I will definitely read the article, but I think that's uh, where I would end up. Okay. All right, Ben, let's go on to uh, your wordplay. So a couple of years ago, well, maybe more than a couple of years ago, I was with, sitting with a journalist uh, who was trying to figure out what to do for his next book project. Uh, this is a journalist who spends a lot of time on war on terror issues. And I suggested to him that the story of Anwar al-Awlaki uh, was the perfect journalistic story to encapsulate, my theory was, all of the war on terrorism. Because Al-Alauki knew two of the 9-11 hijackers, um, you know, was kind of flirted with moderation in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, then becomes the sort of successor to Osama bin Laden as the sort of big event threat, and is finally killed in a drone strike, uh, heralding sort of the post-interrogation uh, you know, post-detention era of American counterterrorism. And uh, this journalist didn't, in fact, take me up on this as the, um, but I uh, received in the mail this week a book by the New York Times reporter Scott Shane called Objective Troy, A Terrorist, a President, and the Rise of the Drone. And Objective I was fascinated. Objective Troy? Objective Troy. Is that a code name? It's a cool name. It's it a is cool, a cool code yeah. name. Um, and I was intrigued in his prologue. Uh, Shane writes, this is Scott Shane, not Shane Harris. The life of Anwar al-Alauki, who knew two of the future 9-11 hijackers at his San Diego mosque in the months before their plot unfolded, and who was killed a decade later after a high-tech, no-holds-barred manhunt, seemed to encompass the era. His story spanned four presidencies, raised in pointed ways the dangers of both terrorism and the reaction to it, and seemed emblematic of the defining conflict between America and an extreme school of Islam. All about Anwar. So I was, I was fascinated by this, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Scott, um, among other things, did some of the pioneering early reporting about Anwar al-Alauki's uh, presence in the U.S. and his very mm -hmm. weird career here, which encompassed everything from, you know, sort of knowing the 9-11 hijackers to maybe having been sort of involved, but probably not, to being a moderate 
speaker afterwards, to having several prostitution arrests. Um, and so he's a fascinating character. And I think the story of the manhunt is really one of the most interesting episodes in post 9-11 history. So I'm really glad Scott wrote this book. And I'm, I've only read a little bit of it so far, but I'm really looking forward to reading it. It also strikes me as, as somebody who has written books that it's, it's a very bold um, conceit for a book at this time in American publishing, where, I mean, I remember two or three years ago when I was selling At War, it was, there was this feeling that what American editors were really big on was sort of big idea books and things that were sort of sweeping and a lot blink. of, you know, blink and salt <laughs> and cod and, you know, conceptual frames and this kind of cod thing. Cod in particular. Cod was, yeah, I didn't read cod. I should read cod. Um, but that there wasn't as much of an appetite for this sort of narratives, not that they were against narrative, but that there was that were less in favor were these sort of purely narrative-driven kind of stories, which oddly enough... About are, specific things. Right, which yeah. oddly enough do very well in Britain. Um, but, so I'm really glad to see that I agree with you, Ben. I mean, there's so... It touches on so many themes and so many parts of the arc of this overall war on terror narrative in this one story. And to sort of dive deeply like a spy novel almost into this one event is just very satisfying. I'm glad... I'm. And Scott, this is almost kind of, I think, like in a way, the, the end of a real passion project as a reporter for Scott, who seized in on this one figure very early. And, and in reporting on him, I think, tried to unpack so many of the issues and conflicts of right. the war. And, and I think, you know, the counterterrorism, unusually, I think, uh, lends itself very well to these relatively or seemingly narrow narrative pieces. So I'm thinking of the, 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 the books that I have most valued in the counterterrorism literature in the last few years include, uh, Joby Warwick's book, The Triple Agent, which is, you know, really about this one bombing at a forward operating location in Afghanistan. And it's at one level a very, very narrow story. Uh, but he tells so much of the CIA's operations through that story. Uh, and similarly, both Peter Bergen and Mark Bowden wrote mm -hmm. amazing books about the hunt for Osama bin Laden that are, again, at one level, very narrow, just, you know, how we got him, but at another level, really uh, rich portraits of uh, military and CIA uh, operations. But also way bigger, like, I mean, historical events than the killing of Amr al-Awlaki. Right. You know, it, it's a, it, and, and you know, not to overlook the fact that he was you know, an American citizen who was killed, and it brings up all of these issues of you know targeting Americans as well. But you know, it's, it's um, yeah, I, I think that journalistically, it's a very bold frame to use. And, and tell us about the title, Operation Troy. Actually, you're going to have to tell us about the title because Our I don't Troy because I, because I haven't gotten far enough in the I book. am I think it's a very cool title, and I am merely assuming that it is a reference to like the internal CIA code to Must refer. Be. I, I mean, it's obviously a code name. That is my assumption as well. Yeah. But I um, I have not gotten yet to the point in the book where it is specifically explained. And is there a Trojan horse we'd involved in the we'd operation? We'd be totally wrong about this, by the way, that it's not referring to that at all. Um, we'll try and get that. I, I, let's just let's just pretend it is. All right, and we're and, right. And we're, we're, <laughs> we know we're right, Scott. We'll, we know what your book's and about. And we'll correct it next week if we're wrong. Yeah, but uh, but it, it doesn't just sound. I mean, this it really just sounds like something that would be like a thriller, objective Troy. Totally. You know, perfect. 
Um, okay, why don't we move on to object lessons? Um, who would like to go first with their object? Well, you know, we're we're uh, we've spent so much time talking about um, ISIS and Al Qaeda, and and we had the news over the past few days of uh, ISIS's destruction of um, incredible uh, artifacts and uh, and temples at Palmyra in Syria. You know. They've been guilty of numerous crimes against humanity, and and these are crimes against human heritage and and um, our our civilizational heritage. I actually spent uh, the weekend in London, including an incredible day at the British Museum. Um, and so, as this news about destruction at Palmyra was coming over the airwaves, I was actually looking at some incredible friezes that were taken by the British in the 19th century from Nineveh. Um, another place that ISIS would uh, love to see wiped from the face of the earth. So, um, so it was actually an opportunity to uh, to appreciate the um, the cradle of civilization, the layers of human history um, that this region encompasses, and the pluralism that this region has encompassed over many many years. And uh, and even though there are lots of Arguments about whether it's fair or right that uh, artifacts from Nineveh and from you know the Acropolis and so on are now in London and Berlin. Um, it is is still uh, I think a good thing that they're preserved in a place where the world can come and see them. So this is um, this is a frieze uh, from uh, of an Assyrian king fighting a lion uh, that was on the palace at Nineveh. And uh, and I'll share this with all of you on the Rational Security website. Great, uh, Ben, would you like to show us your object? Here it is, guys. Jesus. Jesus. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a baby Jesus. It's a baby Jesus. Um, with and Madonna with, with a mommy. <laughs> um, so as you know, I was have been in Jerusalem uh, uh, recently and. Uh, spent some time along with some other people in the company of the uh, 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 the Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem, um, who, um, by the way, looks the part and and looks good beard, straight out of Central Cast. Fabulous, he looks awesome, and he gave us each uh, a um, an icon, a, a little sort of silver painted icon, uh, which is. Quite lovely, and um, I was thinking other religious fa figures uh, of note should should learn from this tradition and sort of give out uh, cool cool things, party favors. What um, would your icon be, Shane, if you gave out icon? an icon? I don't know. Maybe I'd give everyone like a really nice pair of shoes. Not really nice pair of shoes. I'd I give everyone a martini. Oh, that would be my icon. Yeah, a, mar a martini. Yeah, we, definitely. If anybody wants yeah, to paint uh, an icon of a martini, anyway, I I, I thought the, uh, the the patriarch of Jerusalem had, um, first of all, I, I I think it's one thing that will interest rational security uh, listeners is that the patriarch of Jerusalem displays um, as his document that legitimizes him himself an agreement which. He contends, and I certainly can't think of a counterexample, is the oldest legal document still in force in the world. Um, the Code of Hammurabi? No, 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 because it's not still in force. 
So this is uh, an agreement that was made between the Muslim conqueror of Jerusalem and the then patriarch of Jerusalem to respect uh, the religious rights of Christians in, and, and to respect the patriarchate uh, in, in the city. Uh, and that this still governs, the, the, uh, both the Jordanian government and the Israeli government still honor this agreement. And he contends it is the oldest extant uh, operational piece of law in the world. Wow. Um, and I think that's so he had a copy of it there. And um, I don't read Arabic, so I, I couldn't um, couldn't tell you precisely what it says. But I think it's um, a pretty... There were fire exit instructions. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, and if any uh, readers or listeners know... Uh, can think of a, of a, a still operational contract that is older than that. Uh, please write us in and let us know. Okay. Um, my object, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and just, I don't know why, but I feel like there's probably some overlap between listeners of the podcast and Werner Herzog fans. Yeah. Oh, that must be. Right, it just feels right, doesn't it? Well, my object Which is why we're gonna have a special rational security, uh, viewing of Aguirre, the wrath of God. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, or Fitzcarraldo. Um, or, or Nosferatu. Yes, yes. Some of his greats. Uh, and more recent uh, 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 fans of Werner Herzog might know for movies like uh, Grizz- Grizzly Man, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Uh, but in his documentaries, I mean, Werner Herzog has this, he narrates many of them. And anyone who's heard him in his, like, sort of like, just like thick Bavarian accent where it's just like he's almost sort of bemoaning his own existence <laughs> and this sort of flat monotone. Well, someone has been inspired by this and has started a fake Twitter feed called Warner Tortsog, oh. where he tweets in the voice of Warner Herzog. So, for instance, and, and you really have to, I'll read that just in plain language, but then you have to imagine it as being Warner Herzog reading it. So it'll be things like, I use the finest oak barrels for aging my resentments. <laughs> and other ones like, Compute the security question. At what age did you first recognize the indifference of the universe to your pain? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not shocked by impertinent remarks on Twitter. It is the nature of primates to throw feces. Oh, my. (laughs) And then yesterday, what is it? As we all know, the purpose of Miss Piggy was to show the constructedness and hysterosity of Western gender norms. (laughs) (laughs) It is absolutely delightful stuff. And on September 5th, uh, under the hashtag Twertsog, there's going to be a twer- tweet like <laughs> Warner Herzog Day. <clears throat> and he has this great poster with Warner Herzog's face, and it just says, pain, brutality, jungle, insanity, death, soul, mountain, murder, ecstatic, cinema. Tweet like Warner Herzog Day. <laughs> September awesome. 5th. It is truly, truly delightful. I think Lawfare that day will, will do all of its tweets. I'm marking my calendar. I'm clearing all the events. It's this Saturday. I really just... In hashtag Tortsog, tweet at him. He will tweet back. He seems like a truly delightful person. Uh, Maybe we know what Werner Herzog thinks of Tortsog. I don't know if Werner Herzog is on Twitter, and that's probably for the best. But can I can I just ask whether Tortsog wants to be a guest on Rational Security, sponsored by Raytheon? (laughs) (laughs) We will certainly. How does Raytheon feel? He'd love to come and talk about the military-industrial complex. There you go. I felt I was becoming one with the Patriot missile. Yeah, right. I think I think that's an idea. Yeah, we should definitely have them on. On behalf of our sponsors at Raytheon, <laughs> I I would think it's time to wrap up. Okay.
<laughs> Before this idea goes any further. <laughs> if Twertzog wants to join us next week. You can guest host. You can guest host <laughs> by Twitter. All right. Yes, we will wrap up. That brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other show pages at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, you can also download the podcast, of course, from iTunes, Stitcher, uh, what, Overcast, Instacast. They're all out there. They all have it. Whatever cast. We're everywhere. Whatever cast that you're on. But when you cast do it. Cast around. Cast around for the podcast. But when you do, please, please, please uh, leave a review and a rating. Uh, our podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Uh, music this week was performed by uh, the David Petraeus two-timing two-steppers. Ooh. I thought you were going to go with yeah. Omar Alalafi and the Almas for a reconcile. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> that's even better. Uh, on behalf of my friends uh, Ben Winnis and Tamara Kaufman Winnis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.